Listening to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. We are continuing our conversations in the English Reformation series, and we'll do that in just a moment. Thanks to Concordia University Wisconsin for supporting the Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live uncommon. Our guest for this series, the Reverend Dr. Cameron McKenzie, Professor of Historical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. McKenzie, welcome back. Thank you. Nice to be here again. Last time we left off, so Henry had died, now Edward and some of the the reforms during some of the Protestant reforms under Edward and Cranmer's contributions. So that left us with uniform liturgy, Book of Common Prayer, services in English. And so where do you want to pick up next? Well, I think we'll pick up, we should pick up with the second prayer book. But as a preface to the second prayer book, I'll talk a little bit about the politics that was taking place. As I said before, when we were talking about the first prayer book of 1549, it was kind of a mishmash so that you could find in it what you wanted to find, but it was not consistently Protestant or consistently Catholic. Maybe there are parts where even Lutheran, but it's certainly not consistently Lutheran. So almost from the get-go, there was interest in changing it, making it. One of the things that had taken place in England during the reign of Edward VI was that on the continent, the Lutherans and the Protestants had lost the Schmalkald War. Right after the death of Luther, 1546, the Schmalkald War breaks out. Within a couple of years, the Lutherans have lost. And that means the emperor is in a position, he thinks, to reimpose Catholicism on the Holy Roman Empire. And that meant that Protestants, lots of them, had better get out of town or they're going to be in, in the dungeon or something. Anyway, Cranmer opened up England to Protestant exiles. And a number of important theological reformers did come. One of them is close to being a Lutheran. This, his, this name is Martin Bootser. He's the principal reformer of Strasbourg. And he, he was brought in and he was given a teaching post at the University of Oxford, I believe, or maybe it was Cambridge. I'm not sure which one, but he's at one of them. But at any rate, so we've got men like that who are then assisting the government, Cranmer, in promoting the Protestant faith through preaching especially, but also through writing now and the teaching. Actually, Cranmer had invited Melanchthon uh, to come. Melanchthon didn't. He preferred to stay home and try to keep as much of the Lutheran Reformation as he could in these changed conditions. And of course, he gets into all kinds of squabbles with his fellow Lutherans. And probably there's more than one occasion when he thought maybe he should have taken up Cranmer's invitation. But at any rate, this Martin Bootser, very important figure in terms of the Continental Reformation, did review that first prayer book. And he had some significant suggestions for Cranmer. And so Cranmer is going to prepare a second edition. It's going to come out in 1552. Meanwhile, however, the protector of the realm under Edward VI has fallen from power. Things went bad. The economy went bad. It kind of sounds a little bit like our own politics. And so the supporters that he had on the king's council turned against him. And instead, they chose as kind of their leader, although he's no longer called protector, another duke 
Uh, this is the Duke of uh, North Northumberland. And so he becomes kind of number one man along with the king. And the king's getting older, so he's going to be exercising more direct authority in his own name anyway. But we've got another regime, and people were uh, worried that Northumberland would roll back the Reformation. No, instead, he endorsed it, and it kept on moving. And so under Northumberland's leadership, England continues to become Protestant, more Protestant, and Cranmer will produce that second prayer book. And this prayer book is much more clearly Protestant, uh, or to categorize it more precisely, it's much more clearly reformed in its theological orientation. And the best place, of course, to see that is with respect to the sacrament of the altar and in the communion service, which is completely redone. There are lots of references to a spiritual eating by faith. And the best example of that was what does what did the priest say as he was distributing the consecrated host and the congregated blood? He would say, take and eat this and feed on him in thy heart by faith with thanksgiving. So that that is kind of the Calvinist position with communion. You eat bread with your mouth, but you by faith you believe in Jesus and you have a kind of spiritual communion. So not a mouth communion, but a spiritual communion. So at any rate, most people I think would agree with me that the second book is much more clearly reformed. Certainly not Catholic, but also certainly not Lutheran in its views of the Lord's Supper. Now, this is put into effect in 1552. Meanwhile, there are important preachers of Reformation in various places and pulpits. One of the men that we've now mentioned a couple of times kind of comes back from an early retirement, so to speak, and that's Hugh Latimer. He's now back and he's preaching publicly in London and developing this great reputation as a, as a preacher. There's another exile who comes back and he's supportive of the Reformation. And this is, this is a refugee, not from the continent, from, but from Scotland. Some of you may know the name John Knox. He's the great reformer of Scotland. Well, he's in England during the latter years of Edward's reign, and he's preaching and teaching and promoting Reformation. So there's Reformation is certainly on the road in England under Edward. Now, the one thing they don't have yet by 1552 is they don't have a confession of faith, but Cranmer undertakes to prepare one. And he gets one done by 1553 that the king actually approves just shortly before his death. And so this is a doc, a document known as the 42 Articles. It's 42 Articles of Faith, and it defines what religion was supposed to be in England. And if you read the 42 Articles, you can see some articles which actually, actually sound like the Augsburg Confession. They were kind of based on the Augsburg Confession, but it's, it's a lot bigger than the Augsburg Confession. And when it gets down to the Eucharistic stuff and even predestination, it comes out being reformed. But, but, but it is certainly not a Catholic. It's kind of Reformed Protestant confession of faith. Unfortunately, for the Protestant cause, Edward died too. His confession of faith is just approved by the king, and then he passes away. So the question is, what next? What are we going to do during the next reign? And who's going to be 
the monarch. Well, King Henry VIII had left a will, and he had specified that that first should come his son, and then if his son died without an heir, there should come his older daughter, Mary, and if she should die without an heir, there should come his younger daughter, Elizabeth. But of course, Henry's dead. He can't enforce this. And, and so the politicians around Edward VI, including and especially the Duke of Northumberland, they... Um, they did not want the older daughter to inherit the throne because she was a Catholic. She's the daughter of Henry's first wife, Catherine of Aragon. And Catherine and her daughter Mary had remained faithful to the Catholic Church through all of the rest of Henry's reign. Well, Catherine had died, but they had remained faithful to the Catholic religion. And Mary was still a Catholic, even during under the reign of her brother. So she's the one who, by Henry's will, is supposed to come to the throne. Well, Northumberland didn't want to do that. Northumberland thought this is a bad idea. It will undo everything that we've been trying to do. And so he persuaded Edward to make a will. And in his will, Edward left the throne to a cousin. Her name was Jane, and she is descended from... Henry the seventh through a sister of Henry the eighth. So it's, she's got a, she, her grandfather is royalty, might've been her great grandfather, but she's got royal. And so Edward leaves the throne to her, Lady Jane Grey. Now, somewhat coincidentally, in quotes, she was married by that time. She's 15 years old, but she had just gotten married. And who did she marry? Well, she married the Duke of Northumberland's son. Guilford Dudley. Okay. So this was the plan. Edward dies and King's Council, all the big shots, hail Jane as their queen. Jane as their queen. Now, that sounded good, but they failed to do one thing, and that was to take Mary into captivity. Because while they are hailing Queen Jane, Mary is moving out of her castle and coming down through the towns of England, all the way to London, and everywhere she goes, she's being hailed as Queen Mary. So while the big shots are saying Queen Jane, the people are saying Queen Mary. And that became so obvious by the time she got to London, all of the administrators, including the Duke of Northumberland, the mayor of London and so forth, they're all greeting her, Mary, as their queen. So Lady Jane is sometimes known in the history books as the Nine Days Queen. And on account of the machinations of others, she and her husband are promptly clapped into the Tower of London. Mm. So now we have the reign of Henry's second child. This is Mary. As I said, she's a Catholic and she's going to do Catholic things during her reign. But maybe we should pause here and we'll pick it up with Mary after the break. Yes. We're talking with Dr. Cameron McKenzie, professor of historical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne. All English Reformation on to the reign of Mary. After the break, you're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Sarah Golseth. I'm Andy Bay. (laughs) 
At Concordia University, Wisconsin, we believe you were created for a reason, to use your God-given gifts to help others, to live a life of self-sacrifice in a me-first world, to live a life that's uncommon. Whether you're taking one of 50-plus online programs or learning with us in person on the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll be equipped to make an uncommon impact. Learn more at cuw.edu. Concordia University, Wisconsin. Live uncommon. Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Sarah Golseth. I'm Andy Bates. We're talking with Dr. Cameron McKenzie, professor of historical theology at Concordia Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, about the English Reformation. And we left off at the beginning of Queen Mary's reign. What happens with Queen Mary? Well, Mary began wisely enough. She didn't put a lot of people to death, you know, right away. Northumberland was put to death. He didn't last very long. And actually, poor Lady Jane and her her husband, too, were later put to death. But it wasn't a wholesale slaughter of all the queen's enemies. Nonetheless, she made it very clear that England was going back to the Catholic faith. She brought back onto her privy council the, the Catholics who were left from the previous reign of Henry. And then she started negotiating with the Pope for the return of Catholic officials and the like to England. That's going to take a while. I'll explain here in a second. And she summoned Parliament. And through Parliament, she worked to um, undo the reformation of her brother's and her father's reign. Well, Parliament, and this kind of shows you how the system worked, that the monarch's not a dictator. She's going to undo what previous parliaments had done through a current parliament. And they do pass an act of repeal. And that annulled all of the religious legislation of Edward's reign. So the prayer books, et cetera, all went by the board. They also, it also ordered that the church services be exactly as they had been in Henry's last year. That means in Latin and uh, the sacrifice of the mass and so forth. But one thing that parliament did not do was to repeal the supreme headship of her father's reign. So Mary is still the supreme head of the Church of England. Now, it's kind of ironic. She doesn't want this power, but she can use this power to restore Catholicism. And so that's what she does. She will put into place Catholic officials, put into place Catholic doctrine, Catholic legislation, and eventually she will recognize the Pope's representative when he comes. A big problem for the Parliament was not their Protestant leanings, but were those lands and that property and that wealth that had been taken from the church by Henry and then also by Edward's government, and then it had been turned into money for government policies with the property then going into the hands of the property owners. And they were concerned that if they actually did recognize the Pope, all of that land would be forfeit to the Catholic Church again. So that had to be worked out. And finally, it was. The Pope agreed that he would not press the case for the papal, for the, for the church lands so that they could keep them. When that deal was set, the Pope's representative, a cardinal by the name of Reginald Poole, he was an Englishman, he comes and he now is chosen as Archbishop of Canterbury because Thomas Cranmer has been defrocked. He's out of office. 
And so the new archbishop, the Pope's representative, Reginald Poole, goes to Parliament and Parliament gets down on its knees uh, to repent of their sin of schism against the papacy. And uh, uh, Reginald Poole, the new archbishop, Pope's representative, forgives them. So England is now officially forgiven of its sin of Protestant Reformation and breaking from the Pope and is brought back completely into the Catholic fold. So we now have the full restoration, restoration of Catholicism in England under Mary. Now, what is she going to do with this power? Well, she does replace personnel. And as I said before, Cranmer is out and others are out and so forth. This leads to several, several hundred actually, of leading Protestant clergy and especially laymen to leave England and go as exiles to the Protestant lands of the continent. And so these people are sometimes called the Marian exiles. And they settle in various places on the continent. Unfortunately, very few of them actually go to Lutheran territories or Lutheran cities. Instead, they go to places like Geneva, Calvin, Zurich, where Swingley had been. Now, Bullinger was the great reformer there. And so they get a kind of a, a continental impression of what Reformation should mean, and it should be like the Reformation in Geneva and Zurich. So these exiles come under heavy Reformed Protestant influences. The ones in Geneva are especially interesting if you're concerned about the English Bible, because they produce yet another version of the English Bible. This is called the Geneva version. And it is a major revision of what Coverdale and Tyndale had originally. It is the first English Bible that's actually produced in English type. I don't know if you've ever seen books from this period. They have that Gothic type with elaborate, difficult to read letters. Well, mm -hmm. this is now in Roman type or the type that we're used to. And that was kind of a big deal. And it, it's heavily annotated from the Calvinist perspective. And the reason I'm mentioning it is because Mary's reign is so short, when Elizabeth comes to the throne, the Geneva Bible really becomes the best-selling Bible in England at the 16th, end of the 16th century. It's, sometimes it's called Shakespeare's Bible because that's when he mentions scripture, that's what he'll be referring to and the like. So at any rate, that's a big deal from the exiles. As far as Mary is concerned, they're gone. She's not gonna worry about them. However, there are Protestants still in England. And some of them are important figures like Cranmer and some of the other bishops. These men are now basically faced with a decision of whether they're going to repent of their faith or what are they gonna do? Well, there's a lot of pressure put on these men so to repent, but they refuse to do so. And Mary starts, her church starts executing men again for heresy. And I shouldn't say that this hadn't happened at all under Edward or Henry, but it's going to happen in big numbers under Mary. There will be a couple of hundred people burned at the stake in public execution on account of their persisting in the Protestant faith. These are known as the Marian martyrs. And there are, as I say, a couple of hundred of them. Most of them are just kind of ordinary folk, people who had embraced the Protestant Reformation and who didn't shut up about it, and who got caught, arrested, convicted, refused to give it up, and so they were burned at the stake. And a, 
Othello, a clergyman who had gone to the continent, would come back under Elizabeth by the name of John Fox, kind of gathered up all the accounts of these martyrs and eventually would uh, publish them. And it became kind of a bestseller during the Elizabethan period. And even today, people will refer to Fox's book of martyrs. And Fox has these accounts of how these uh, people died in really kind of heroic fashions. And I want to mention the death accounts of a couple of them. First of all, you remember Hugh Latimer. We've mentioned him more than once in this series. He's one of the first Protestants. Then under the Henry VIII, he becomes a Protestant bishop. Then when Henry goes to his Catholic period again, Latimer has to resign. He spends a little time in the Tower of London. But then under Edward, he comes back and he preaches from St. Paul's Cross pulpit in London, becomes famous as a preacher of Protestantism. Well, he's arrested. And he's arrested along with Thomas Cranmer and a, a young English bishop by the name of Nicholas Ridley. Well, Ridley and Latimer are executed together. And this means they're taken out, bound to stakes, and then the flames are set to a straw and up it goes. Well, Latimer, but they both die heroically. But Latimer's last words, practically his last words, are to Ridley. And he says to the effect, cheer up, Ridley, and play the man. For today we shall light a candle in England, which by God's grace will never go out. Up come the flames. And, you know, if you, I don't know if there are any Protestants left in England today, but that's what he was talking about. So it's really very, very moving. Cranmer was not so brave as Nicholas Ridley and Latimer. He gave up. He recanted his Protestant faith. And he did it more than once. He wrote, I recant, I recant, I recant. But it didn't save him, perhaps because he had presided over the divorce of Catherine and Henry. Who knows? But he went to the stake anyway. And the Catholics, thinking that his recantation was sincere, gave him one more opportunity to recant publicly before his death. And of course, what he did was to recant his recantation. And he said, this is the worst thing that I ever did. I repent. I'm sorry. It's just terrible. And then he says, and it's my right hand that signed all these things. They betrayed me. And so when the flames come up, I will see to it that this right hand is burned first. And that's exactly what he did. He's at the stake. They light the flames. Up comes the flame. And he sticks his right hand into that flame and holds it there until he is totally overcome. It's like a charred stump when he finally passes away. So that's the kind of example that the Marian martyrs were setting. These are public executions, and they really impressed the English people with the caliber and quality of that Protestant faith. So it didn't really work the way Mary had thought that it would. Now, I can see that we're running out of time here. I've got a little bit more to say about Mary uh, and Usher and Elizabeth, but maybe we should let that go until next time. Always leave us on a cliffhanger. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Works for me. <laughs> All right. So we'll, we'll pick up with a little bit more of Queen Mary next time and then move into Elizabeth. Interesting. Our guest, the Reverend Dr. Cameron McKenzie, Professor of Historical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. McKenzie, thanks so much. Well, you are very welcome. Thank you for having me. 
You've been listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support The Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you. Anytime. Anywhere. Anywhere.